So our 20th was approaching and we knew we needed to do something to celebrate. Start thinking, okay, what can I do that just tops everything? You know, so I started thinking about different vacations we've had. You know, there's Hawaii, maybe we try something new like Fiji or whatever. And then I thought, man, the greatest times we've had in life have been those times when we actually serve somewhere together. And so we said, why not do that for our 20th and go somewhere crazy and let's go to East Africa. It's our honeymoon. <laughs> This ministry that we've been supporting, our friends Pat and Sue, I'd like to see it. And she agreed. We knew this wasn't going to be a trip that was, you know, mushy all about us. And I guess it would be easy to think that we were a little crazy to expose ourselves to real starvation. It's weird, you know, being in the States, sometimes you can lose some of your heart for these things. They become distant. I mean, we had the opportunity to actually feed some of these kids who were about to die. I mean, literally days away from death. To be in that environment with my wife and to see her that way on our 20-year anniversary, it was just, it was powerful. All the girls that you see behind me, there's more than 500. Each of them will have to leave tonight, this party, in, um, Go back to the red light district and work in commercial sex. Hands down, grossest place I've ever been was the red light district in, in East Africa. Just seeing these women who, gosh, they just look so sad. Literal thousands, thousands of them. And they're in these rooms that are barely big enough for a bed and they're just lined up side by side in these shacks and guys will come in and sleep with them for a dollar each and and they had their kids a lot of them had their kids under their bed while all this is going on but then i saw these pictures in, in pat's office there are these pictures of him walking some of these girls down the aisle on their wedding day and <laughs> that was just so beautiful. And I, I'll admit, I just felt like a jealousy, like, because what cooler thing could you do while you're on the earth? Like, like to think that you helped a girl out of that misery, like that hopelessness, and you introduced her to Jesus, you helped her get a job, you helped her you know, realize what she was created for. And then she falls in love with a guy and and, uh, and he actually treats her like a woman. And, and, and now they're gonna get married and she looks at you and says, well, you are the one, you've been my dad. You've been the dad to me. Will you walk me up the aisle? And, and to have the honor of, of handing this woman over after seeing her life change and then give her over to a man who's actually gonna treat her with respect and take care of her and, and cherish her. I just thought, oh. So jealous. Well, good morning. My name is Matt Davis. I'm marriage and family pastor here. Uh, my wife and I are heading into our 15th anniversary this October. And as, thank you, we made it. <laughs> well, almost, we got till October, but we will make it. We will make it. All right. Think about that, though. Um, that was Francis Chan. That is a clip from a series called Right Now, uh, on Right Now Media. It's from his book, uh, You and Me Forever. Um, and, and 
it highlights some of the, the crazy stuff that's going on throughout our world. But what I want you to see is that they did something very different with, with their anniversary, with their marriage. There's something unique going on that I, I think we need to pay attention to. And we're going to dive into a passage today that, that is about marriage. But I know some of you here are not married. And so I don't want you to turn off and say, oh, it's that one. Uh, I'm going to check out Uh, because I believe that whether you are in a marriage, whether you're in a dating relationship or whether you just have friends, people in your life, there are some principles. There are some things here that I want to highlight for you that will help us as we are relating, as we are loving one another, as we are working through some of the struggle and trial. And I believe that God wants to move us. This is within our theme uh, called better together. And, And so If you look at your outlines, uh, I kind of titled this message, We Are One. And the truth is that a lot of times we are not one in our marriages. We're not one sometimes in our friendships. And my hope is that as a church, as our relationships grow, that we have that oneness in our relationships. Um, So wherever you're at, I, I realize that some of you are coming in here with very heavy burdens, that your marriages might be on the rock that you might be in some kind of struggle today. And so I I want you to get some hope. I want you to get some perspective. And and maybe if we truly believe that God is highlighting the best way to live, and we believe that that is in his word in the Bible, if we follow that, that there is healing for our souls. So if you grab the Bibles, you have your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of you. Uh, we're on page 153. The passage is Ephesians 5 verses 21 to 33. And uh, we're going to just jump right into it. Now, this is what it says. Start in verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Hold on. How did I get this passage? Some of you might be guests with us today. Some of you might have been here for a while, but you might have problems with some of the passages that show up in scripture. This, as you read it right off the bat, it feels a little bit like 1950s. The man works, the woman stays at home, barefoot, cleaning, doing the dishes and all that. And women, you got to be subject. You got to be submissive to the man. I want to unpack this because I believe that the context here is important. Some of you might walk out of here a little bit upset with me today. Not the women, though. I think we're going to be okay. (laughs) I hope. I live with one. We'll be okay. But what I want is for us to wrestle with this. And this is something that I've been wrestling with for a good long time. And I believe that there's something for us to learn. Now, this idea... Of, of addressing. And what we're going to talk about today and next week and even the week after is, is kind of what do we do? How do we live in our households? There's this like household code. And I want you to see this. It's also in your, your bulletins. But 
um, the household code is, is something that Paul is addressing. He's addressing some groups of people. In fact, um, it, it's, it's this pater familius. It's, it's, the, it's the head of the household and how are we supposed to, to run? And these three categories, today we're going to be talking about wives and husbands. Next week, it's children and fathers and then slaves and masters. And this is highlighted both here in Ephesians 5 and then in Colossians 3. Paul is also talking about it. I believe these letters were probably written at the same time and delivered, but then given to those different cities, Colossae and Ephesus. And so Paul is doing something incredibly unique. You have to think about the culture to which these letters were being written. Now, Paul had never been to Colossae, but he had been to Ephesus and he is writing with deep familiarity. He knows the people, he knows their struggles, he knows some of the things that he was addressing and what they were struggling with. And when he addresses this, he actually starts out by addressing the wives. In this culture, wives were not seen in a very high view. But even the fact that he is addressing them and he's addressing them first is putting them in a place of prominence. Now, look at this passage, this household code in 350 BC, before Paul ever penned this, Paul is adapting something from culture. Aristotle wrote this and this is what he said. And now that it is clear what are the component parts of the state, we have first of all, to discuss the household management. For every state is composed of households. Household management falls into departments corresponding to the parts of which the household in its term is composed. And the household in its perfect form consists of slaves and freemen. The investigation of everything should begin with its smallest parts. And the primary and smallest parts of the household are master and slave, husband and wife, father and children. We ought, therefore, to examine the proper constitution and character of each of these three relationships. Paul is addressing these different groups, but he's trying to breathe new life and say something different about this. Now, before we even get into the wives submit to your husbands, we got to go back one verse where it says that we are all to submit to one another. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. When we look at this, that we are called to submit to one another, we can now move forward and we can think about, well, what are the ways that we are called to do this? Now, there is a struggle with this passage. This passage where it says, wives, be subject, or maybe some of your translations, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Um, I want us to get this idea. Um, we, we, We struggle with this because... Um, it says that the man, the husband is the head of the wife. We're going to unpack what that verse means, but I want us to go back to the very beginning. And there's this passage in Genesis chapter two. So if you can keep your finger right there in Ephesians five, but if you go back to Genesis chapter two, Right before Genesis 2 is Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, all of creation happens. And there's this rhythm that's going on throughout Genesis 1. God is creating everything. And after he makes everything, he says, it is good. It is good. The Lord looked at what he he had made and he said, it was good. Seven times he says this. And then we get into chapter 2 and specifically in verse 18. And for the first time, that rhythm is broken. And he says, it is not good. 
Verse 18, it says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Now, we have two passages here that give us a little bit of trouble. One is, wives, be subject to or submit to your husbands, for the husband is the head of the wife. And then we have, God says, I'm going to make a helper suitable. I want to unpack those words. In the Hebrew, we have the word helper. Helper is the word azer. Everybody say azer. Azer in the Hebrew means helper, aid, or strength. In fact, it's used in the Old Testament 20 times, and 16 of those times it is used of God. If you look up those passages, and we have some of them, but it says that I I was looking for the Lord. I called upon the Lord for my help. This is Psalm 115. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. When we look at that and we think about God in terms of being our helper, we don't think like what I originally think is like this kind of like you go to your kid's preschool class and you kind of help them out. You help the teacher. Like I'm going to be the teacher's little helper today. It's actually this picture of strength. And the reason that Adam is alone in the beginning is, is he's missing something. There, he's missing one of his kind. In fact, if you look in, in Genesis 2, after verse 18, God kind of brings this parade by Adam. He says, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the sky, brought them to the man to see what he would call them, whatever the man called the living creature. That was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle, the birds of the sky, to every beast of the field. So now we have the parade that goes through Adam. But then it says there is no helper suitable fit for him. He's alone. I want you to also understand that this is Genesis 2. This is before sin. Do you understand that in the Garden of Eden, we have Adam and we have God and Adam is still alone. This is actually going to sound a little bit heretical, but I want you to hear me for a second. God created Adam to be in relationship with somebody of his own kind. In a sense, God was not enough for Adam. Don't throw the tomatoes. But God, in a way, created us for one another. He created Adam so that he would have somebody with him in in his life. And so he gave him Eve. Eve is this helper suitable. She was his strength. It was somebody, this word is there, is somebody who would stand by your side and do for you, be for you what you could not be for yourself. In fact, it was not that the woman was the weak one. It was Adam in his weakness. And guys, when our wives leave for the weekend, we kind of feel weak, right? We need a lot of help. It was in his loneliness that Eve was created. In fact, in one of the rabbis, he actually says that when God made Eve, God created a power equal to man. That's the picture of Ezer. But the next word is konegdo. Konegdo is this, is this picture of, it's the word suitable, somebody who will stand across from you. Somebody who will challenge, question, and confront. We don't like that part of marriage. Literally, it means somebody, if you see a hole in a dam that you stick your finger in and you help. So where we have the Azair, somebody who's going to love and be your strength and stand next to you, 
the Kenegdo is this picture of somebody who's going to stand across from you and say, hey, uh, you were a little bit rough on the kids. You might need to go back and, and, and talk to them, them through that again. You, you might need to, and those are the parts we just don't like. But what I'm telling you is that some of you, you live in a relationship where all it is is just love, 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 and there's never any confrontation. Some of you have relationships where it's just pointing things out, questioning, confronting, calling into saying, hey, you're not living up. And what we need is we need a healthy balance of that. That is what God prescribed your relationship to be. That is Genesis 2. That is before sin. You go into Genesis 3 and we have trouble, right? If you look at Genesis 3, it says, for the woman, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. God is not prescribing. He is simply describing what the situation is now after sin. Women, you were not created to be weak. In fact, you were strong to live into that. Now, if we go back to Ephesians 5, we have the head. And this is this little picture, um, the head and the body. A lot of people translate this word head to mean the source. It goes back to Genesis 2 where God took from Adam a bone. He created woman and, and, and now he is the source or the head or the leader of. The word for head is kafale. Everybody say kafale. Kafale literally means head. Every time it is used in the New Testament, it talks about they put a crown of thorns on his kafale, on his head. I don't believe that this is a picture of hierarchy, but a picture of partnership, that there is unity. There is supposed to be unity. There's supposed to be a oneness where we can't exist without the other. And so some we have an, an idea of, we, we look at some of this stuff and, and it could look like your, your marriage relationship could look like it's a business deal. And if there is a separation or a divorce, then it's more like a dissolution of a corporation, a dissolving of a corporation. If your marriage is more of a democratic partnership than in a divorce, when you break up, then it's, it's more of a, a termination of a contract. But in this one flesh, in this unity, the picture of divorce is more like a gruesome decapitation. God hates divorce, not the people who get divorced. I hate divorce. If some of you have gone through a divorce, you hate divorce. It's gruesome, it's ugly, and it's hard. But God designed us that we might be one. And where I wanna, where I wanna help you out in this is I see a lot of couples that come through and I hear about this a lot where we have the men, guys, I'm gonna call you out because it's not Father's Day yet. <laughs> but guys, you're reading the Bible and you're saying, hey, I'm sorry, it's in the Bible. It says it's in the Bible, so you need to submit. I will make all of the final decisions. I am the head of the house. It usually does not go really well unless your wife has been beaten down over the years and she just simply submits. On the other end, women, you don't get off that easily. Some of you are beating up your husbands and you are saying, it says that you are the leader and you are not the spiritual leader. You are not leading us like you're supposed to. You're not praying five times a day. You're not leading us in devotions. And therefore, you are a horrible 
husband. You're not doing it how God wants you to be. And I will tell you that there are seasons in my life where I was not in a place to be a good leader for my family. And I needed the strength of my wife to step up and to lead our family spiritually. But we do this together. We submit ourselves to one another because that is what God is calling us to do. All right? You can email me later if you're upset. But I want to just challenge you. There's a a book in the bookstore. It's called Just How Married Do You Want to Be? by the Sumners, Jim and Sarah Sumner. And they explain this from a beautiful theological perspective. Um, But I want us to lean into that and think about that, that in our relationships, in our marriages, in your friendships, that we need people and we need to be the people who are both strong and strength and encouraging. And we also lovingly need to be pointing out, hey, um, there's some things we got to work on. As we go on, that's the command for the wives in verses 22 to 24. But as we go on to verse 25, it says this, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. If I can get across one thing for you today is that God loves you no matter where you're at. Marriage is the picture. Marriage is the vehicle that God is using to tell you how much he loves you. To the extent that you are in love with your spouse, God loves you even more. But we are called to love one another within marriage and within our relationships. And there's a couple of places where we see what that love is supposed to look like because Jesus loved us in this way. And the first area is that love is supposed to be sacrificial, that Jesus gave himself up for us and we are called husbands to give ourselves up sacrificial love for one another. This is not like, hey, we're in a back alley and somebody has a gun and you have to lay down your life for them. I think most of us would probably step up to that situation and take the bullet. But this is a sacrificial love that is daily. This is not just laying your life down when you have the gun to your head, but this is an everyday posture that we look at our spouses, we look at the people that we have in our lives and we say, I love you so much that I will sacrifice myself for you. We, we love, when we love like Christ, it involves a death to ourself, death to self, constantly sacrificing. When we love like Jesus loves, then we are praying for our brides like Christ is praying for us. And then when we love like Jesus, we are attentive to the bride, like Jesus is attentive to the church. We constantly see Jesus praying for the body, for the church. Um, There's a story about a farmer and his wife in the Midwest, and they were in bed one night as a storm came through. um, And as a funnel cloud came and hit their house, it tore the roof off of the house and it sucked their bed as they were laying in their bed, sucked their bed. And they went up in this funnel cloud and the wife is there and she's just crying. And the husband looks over at her and they're flying through 
the air and says, now is not the time to cry. And she said, I can't help it. I'm just so happy. This is the first time that we've been out in 20 years. (laughs) Guys, we love our wives when we pay attention to them. We must be pursuing them. We have to go on dates. We have to have some times where we're not just getting away from the kids, but we are investing ourselves in one another. So we love each other when we are being sacrificial, but we also want a love that is sanctifying. Jesus is sanctifying us as the bride. Now with this, I want to just give you three pictures. One is this Hebrew picture. The the Jewish wedding would take place. The bride would be waiting for the groom to come and to sweep her off her feet. And then they would go off and get married. But the day of the wedding would come and she would ritually bathe herself. And when she finally was, she was cleansed and she gets on her dress and there's not a spot or a wrinkle that she is totally there and ready. This is the picture for us as the church, but this is the picture that we have to pay attention to that, that we are as the bride of Christ, that we are supposed to be sanctified, clean and holy. But there's also this prophetic picture and it's for us as the church that as we see saints, and we saw this a couple of weeks ago as we did baptisms, that as we are being baptized and we are showing our cleanliness, that we have been redeemed from our sin, that, that Jesus one day will come back for his bride and we as the church will stand there holy and blameless and pure. But the other picture is the picture in marriage. Salvation and sanctification come from Christ, but husbands, one of the instruments that God wants to use in your spouse's life is you. And so the question here for us is, is your spouse, is your boyfriend or girlfriend, are your friendships, are the people in your life more like Jesus because they know you? That's the picture of Francis and Lisa Chan. He goes into his marriage and he asks the question in that book, You and Me Forever. He says, I know that one day I'm going to stand before the throne. I'm going to stand before Jesus. I have to give an account for how I live. But I never thought about my wife has to do the same thing. So what am I doing? How am I pouring myself in to their life so that they are prepared as much as possible for that moment when it comes? Do we have a sanctifying relationship? And then we love one another when there is a self-love. He who loves him, his own self. If the golden rule is love your neighbor as yourself, then the, the marital golden rule is love your spouse as you love yourself. Um, and we do this when we show sensitivity, when we show courtesy, that we are putting our spouse, our relationships first And we are doing that when we are communicating. Um, In Greek mythology, there's the story of a beautiful youth who loved no one until they saw their reflection in the water and then fell in love and stayed there until they died and withered away. Uh, Narcissus, it's, it's where we get the name for the flower, the daffodil. It's this beautiful flower. But what we're called to be doing is we are called to love our spouse, the people in our lives in such a way that, that we love ourselves, that we take care of them. And, and the wording used in this passage is that we nourish and we cherish. 
We nourish and we cherish. That word nourish is to go by and you, you would water a plant or you nourish your children and you feed them. That word cherish is, there's a picture of a, a nursing mother with her baby. And, and so we give that kind of love to one another. And finally, not only are we called to come and love one another within marriage, but we are called to come together. Now, this passage in verse 31, it says this. For this reason, and this is going, this is quoting Genesis. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. The first thing we see here is that coming together involves leaving and cleaving. We leave the home of our father and our mother and we become one. It's not just leaving, but we also have to cleave. Your spousal relationship, your marriage is your primary relationship. And so that is the context that life gets worked out. The picture of cleaving is to stick to one another. It's to adhere. And we get this in Job. We have this picture in Job 19.20. It says, my bone clings to my skin and my flesh. That word clings is the same word of when a, a man leaves his father and mother and he cleaves. It's that clinging to. And I figured this might be the only time I can share with you my life verse if you back up a couple of verses. In Job 19, 17, it says, and this is good for all of us in our relationships, it says, my breath is offensive to my wife and I am loathsome to my own brothers. Even young children despise me. I rise up and they speak against me. All my associates abhor me and those I love have turned against me. Isn't that a great passage? doesn't really totally have much to do with this, but it's right there. And it says, my bone clings. But that is our relationship. That is what it's supposed to be like, is we are supposed to stick. And that, that picture of divorce is pulling the muscle off of the bone. It's painful. It's a decapitation. But also, your marriage points to a greater marriage to come. Sometimes, depending on the couple, when I marry a couple... The first words out of my mouth will be, the marriage that you are about to enter into today is ultimately not the marriage that God has for you. And usually the bride will look at me and have that freak out moment like, what are you saying right now? Your marriage here on this earth is preparing you for a marriage to come. That is the mystery. That ultimately we, as the church, we are called to have a relationship there's another marriage to come. It talks about it in Revelation 19, that we will be in a loving relationship with God, the one who made us. See, if you go all the way back to the beginning, God had an intention for what this relationship was supposed to look like. And in Genesis 3, it gets messed up with the fall. The rest of the story is to bring us back to how God originally intended all of this to be. God is trying to bring us back to shalom. God is trying to bring us back to this place because there will be a day where we will stand and we will see him 
and we will be that pure spotless bread. Coming together also involves love and respect. Each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Tell me if this is a good picture of your relationship sometimes. This is from a book called Love and Respect by Emerson Egrick. And what they talk about is that the women need love and the men need respect. But it's a cycle. And you can get into the crazy cycle if this is not happening. Without love, the woman reacts without respect. Without respect, he reacts without love. And it becomes the chicken and the egg. Who started it first? Who's going to end it? And sometimes we just have to come to each other and say, let's call a truce. I'm going to love you despite how you're treating me. I'm going to respect you. And we have to work through that if we are going to be one. But there is separation. There is difficulty in our relationships. Um, they've also talked about this in the same way in the family, that our kids need love and we as parents need respect. I'd suggest looking at both of those. But that crazy cycle in our relationships need to be broken. I want to challenge you today. God has placed you in some kind of relationship whether you have a great friendship or maybe you have some really hard and difficult ones. Maybe you are dating somebody and you guys are just not seeing eye to eye. Maybe you just got out of a relationship because some things have fallen apart. Maybe you are married and you're getting along okay, but you are not living out the marriage that God is calling you to. I wanna encourage you today to live out that Azar Konegdo relationship. That you for one another would be each other's strength, but that you also would love one another enough that you would be able to call them out, that you would question and that you would confront, but that we would move away from this like power trip and who is going to make which decision. If I was married to a woman who was an executive at Goldman Sachs, when it came to financial decisions in the home, I don't think I would say, hey, the Bible says that I'm the man and I'm the head of the house and so I'm going to make this decision. I think in some ways, <laughs> I want to leave that decision to hers. This is not about who does what chores in the house. This is about how are we going to love one another and exhibit that oneness. In Hebrew, it's the word echad. We want to do that in our relationship. So here's something practical. I'm gonna have the worship team come up right now. We're gonna respond in worship, but I also wanna give you an opportunity to respond in a couple other ways. We have stations around the room if you're new, uh, if you're joining us today as a guest. Um, this is an area where we can um, go and we can practice and remember the love that Jesus had for us when he gave his own life, his sacrificial love for us and we have the elements of a cracker. It's, it's representative of his body or there is... There is some juice there that is reminding us of his blood poured out. There's also a bucket there for the offering. But I want to challenge you one step further. And uh, this is, uh, it's, it's in your outline there, but it's, it's what we call a 60-second blessing. In this 60-second blessing, I, I, whether it's where you're sitting, you might want to go off to the sides, it's a little quieter, you might need to go out in the lobby, but here's my challenge for you. Whatever relationship you might be in, 
Maybe you're sitting next to a friend that needs to hear this. Maybe you need to go home and you need to do this even with your kids. But for our marriage relationship, a 60-second blessing is where we stop for a moment and we, for 60 seconds, we tell the other the things that we love and appreciate and we affirm in them. And as you are listening, you receive that. And then you turn to your significant other, your spouse, and you, for 60 seconds, you affirm and love them. You tell them what you appreciate. I have a feeling that many of your relationships are starved for this because you are living in such a way in your relationship that you have forgotten what God is calling us to. Um, we do this in a lot of our marriage workshops and classes here. And even just a couple weeks ago, um, we got to do an event. It was a date night down at the Yost Theater in Santa Ana. And, and Marilee and I, there was somebody else leading with us. And, and they, we did this 60-second blessing. And I've done this with lots of groups and lots of people. And we decided, all right, well, let's play along. We're part of this date night. Let's do it. And so we took a minute and we just started to write down um, some things. I, I did that on my phone. But we just wrote down some things that we loved about one another. And we're standing in the back of this room at the Yoast and my wife starts telling me for 60 seconds all of the things that she loves about me. And out of nowhere, this salty discharge started coming from my eyes. And I thought, what? We've done this before. I tell people how to do it. It's, it got me. I need to hear that. And then I told her a bunch of stuff and maybe you cried too think so? I don't know. But she loved it. You liked it, right? So I might just encourage you guys as we worship and as we come together that you spread out to just do that today before you leave. And if you need some prayer in your relationships, um, we have some pastors and staff and elders. And if you're just a Christian and you know how to pray, then come on up and pray for other people. That's okay. You can do that. You're allowed. It's not people with name tags over here on the sides. All right, but we want to pray and lift one another up that we would have healthy relationships, that we would be one. Let me pray. Father God, we love you and we thank you. God, would you bring healing in our relationships? Would you bring comfort? Lord, if we've been messing it up for the last couple months or for the last 25 years, we can change. And you're calling us to live in relationships where you want to be central. And, and in these relationships, we want to be reminded, we need to be reminded that you love us the same way. Help us to aspire in our relationships with one another to love like you love us. Help us to feel and know that you are with us, that you love us too. So God, would your spirit just move here in this room? Open up hearts that are closed, hearts that don't want to hear this, that don't want to work, that we want to be stubborn and stand our ground and we have every right to be justified and, and have our reasons for holding our ground, but Lord, that we would release that and that you would come in and you would